0: Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Our scripture today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: No. Well, good morning, Antioch. My name is Linda, and I'm our family pastor here at Antioch. And for those of you coming back from spring break, welcome home. And for those of you who stayed in bed, don't you love living in a vacation town? Right, it's been a fun week in Bend. For our family, my parents drove up and we got to spend the week together and they brought their chocolate lab, Bogey, which made my kids spring break. There they are, aw. It's been lovely. Now, you might be wondering why there's a palm frond on your seat. Well, that's because it's Palm Sunday. And I'll have more to say about this in a little bit. But in the meantime, get excited, because it's not every day that we get to have crafts in big church. (laughs) Um, As we draw near to the end of Lent today, we have the privilege of entering into a very specific moment in God's story, known as Palm Sunday. Most of us are probably somewhat familiar with what Palm Sunday is. But I guess we're less familiar with what Palm Sunday means, which means we are in good company since we're told that even the crowd who was there on this day had the same question. They said, or it's the scripture passage says the whole city was asking, who is this and what is going on here? So join me and let's see how this passage helps us answer that very question. As you turn to Matthew 21, let me offer you three nuggets of information to help you set up the story. First, Jesus is at the end of a hundred mile walking road trip, a hundred miles. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Passover, a yearly feast eaten to remember that God delivered the Israelites from slavery. Second, the city of Jerusalem was home to about 50,000 people. But for Passover, they would welcome 150,000 visitors. This place was packed. And we think traffic in Bend in the summer is bad. This was Sardine City. And third, up until this point, Jesus had been operating under the radar. He'd healed people and brought people back to life. He'd done miracle after miracle and repeatedly had given this instruction. Don't tell anyone. But today in our passage, something shifts. Very suddenly, the life of Jesus becomes very public and Jesus doesn't do anything to stop it. So now let's jump in and please join me in Matthew 21. You'll see that our story begins with Jesus and his disciples along with a crowd on the top of a hill overlooking Jerusalem. From the top of this hill called the Mount of Olives, the view would have looked something like this. Except that gold dome in the middle is where the temple would have been, and the temple would have been much bigger. Jesus had made this trip many times. Every year, it had been the same. He'd walked the same roads with the same people. He'd made the same stops. But this year, something begins to deviate, and it's strange. Jesus asks two of his disciples to go get some donkeys and he gives them a code word to use in case things get weird. All they need to say is, the Lord needs them. And the code word works, but it's awkward. Next time you're up at Bachelor and you see some sweet skis, maybe try this out and just take them. And if anyone tries to stop you, just say, the Lord needs them, awkward. Anyway, I suspect the disciples followed Jesus' obscure instructions because as students of the rabbi, they would know Zechariah 9.9 predicts a donkey would bring the Messiah, the promised king, into Jerusalem. The scriptures say, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But that's not it. They also knew a donkey would carry the Messiah from the Mount of Olives, the very hill they were standing on top, to Jerusalem. The scriptures say on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. I suspect they were starting to connect the dots. There's Jesus, there are two donkeys, and they're standing on the Mount of Olives. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. These Hebrew prophecies are incredibly important, but some of it just sounds so weird to us, and that's because we are not steeped in hundreds of years of Jewish prophecy. But this wouldn't have been confusing to his disciples. They knew the long-promised rescuer would ride a donkey from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Now, it surprised me to learn that this wasn't the first time someone had ridden a donkey from the Mount of Olives claiming to be the Messiah. Since the Romans had invaded, life had been terrible, and various leaders had rose up to fight the Romans. For example, this one man came up from Egypt and gathered an army on the Mount of Olives um, and stormed the city with cries to take the country back. And another local um, gathered with hopes of overthrowing the Romans as well. And as you probably figured, both were unsuccessful. And these are just two of the many self-proclaimed messiahs. To add just a bit of perspective to this upcoming Holy Week, Jesus' arrival probably (laughs) didn't look or feel like much of a threat to Rome. Instead, Jesus' arrival on a donkey probably felt like an annoying little uprising like the others in the past. Pilate might have rolled his eyes and put his army on alert, but as the week goes by and tensions rise, the Romans simply want to be done with him. But although the Romans were unimpressed, we begin to see that the crowds are desperate for a savior. And the disciples knew Jesus could absolutely defeat the Romans. I mean, even the wind and the waves obeyed the words of Jesus. And the crowds were incredibly hopeful. Jesus had awed them with miracle after miracle. And to put it in Matthew's own words, never had anything like this been seen in Israel. Here we begin to realize that something curious is happening. And Jesus is up to something, something new. So Jesus mounts that donkey and he begins that steep descent down to Jerusalem. And as he gets going, along with the disciples and his family, the crowd grows bigger and bigger and starts to get excited. There's whooping and there's hollering. There's an impromptu parade that goes down a muddy, dirty road. People are scaling up trees and lopping off branches. People are peeling off their clothes and making a janky carpet for the donkeys and Jesus to walk upon. And Jesus doesn't tell the crowd to be quiet. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. There's something really, really significant happening here. It's interesting to note that this wasn't the only triumphant arrival that the city had welcomed that week. The scriptures tell us that Pontius Pilate had also arrived in Jerusalem for Passover. And when Pilate arrived, there would have been a lot of pomp and circumstance. Do you remember the Disney movie Aladdin when Prince Ali arrives? There are musicians, there's dancers, flags, and he rides in on a... Elephant. The live action Aladdin might help us imagine what the scene might have been like when a Roman official like Pilate arrived. When Pilate, or any Roman official for that matter, arrived in the capital city of Jerusalem, it was a big occasion. One set of scholars helps us paint the scene. Imagine cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets weapons banners the sound of trumpets the marching of feet the clinking of horse bridles the beating of drums and the eyes of onlookers some curious some odd and some resentful does anybody like the show the crown yeah i do too i love it um and as you know last summer the queen died and the coronation of her son, Charles, as king, is set for this upcoming May. And this is going to be a big occasion, as this service will follow nearly a 1,000 years of tradition. King Charles will arrive in a Bentley. The royal guard will, re- will usher him in. The prime minister and the royals from around the world will receive him and welcome him. It's going to be a formal, a serious, and a divine event. Now. Imagine that another bloke shows up at Buckingham Palace on this same day in May driving a beat-up 1984 Toyota Corolla, being welcomed by a strange crowd of beggars, day workers, immigrants, and refugees who lined the streets. And in the most surprising turn of events, this crowd welcomes him as king. Now, we might begin to imagine what Jesus' arrival on a donkey might have felt like to this city of Jerusalem. Here we see Jesus making this grand entrance into Jerusalem in what might seem like a dramatic parody of the powers and authorities of the empire. So what is Jesus up to? Is he mocking Rome? Well, maybe a bit. But he's not mocking Rome for the purpose of being mean. Instead, Jesus is exposing Rome for what it really is. Jesus is showing the crowds that God's ways aren't the ways of the Romans, who'd been ruling over the Jewish people with ruthless terror. Jesus is subverting the ways of the Romans and inviting us to also consider alternatives. This prophesied gentle king as clearing a path and opening up space to consider the casual and common use of violence, fear, and power. Instead of riding in on a war horse with the military reinforcing a kingdom built on fear, Jesus invites us to imagine a kingdom defined in terms such as gentleness, humility, and compassion. Have you heard of Reverend Billy Talon? He and his New York choir drove to the Mall of America to deliver an alternative message at Christmas time. Wearing red and blue choir robes, the choir filled the mall and rode those escalators up and down while singing, altern- or while singing songs that bluntly invited people to stop shopping. After about an hour going from store to store and singing their stop shopping songs, Reverend Billy and his followers were asked by mall security to leave. They peacefully exited the mall. Mission accomplished. Or have you heard of the Zapatista Air Force? They're an an indigenous people group in Mexico who were frustrated by the Mexican government encroaching on their land while building a new Air Force base. So they attacked in an unconventional way with paper airplanes. They flew thousands of paper airplanes over barbed barbed wire fences into a military encampment and each of the airplanes carried a message or poem for soldiers inside the encampment. This was certainly not the end of the conflict between the Mexican government and the Zapatistas, yet it demonstrates something unique that's often overlooked. A crafty tactic can be a valuable tool in the struggle for liberation. Perhaps one of the most enduring slogans from the Zapatistas' paper airplanes is Another way is possible. Or have you heard of Banksy, an English street artist who paints provocative graffiti under the cover of night? He painted one of his works on a wall separating Jerusalem constructed to help curb the city's conflict. You'll see that Banksy painted a man who instead of throwing a grenade or a bomb over the wall is throwing a bouquet of flowers. All three of these public stunts are very calculated public performances designed to grab the attention of the crowd, to challenge values, and to rethink popular norms. And that's what Jesus was doing as he rode a donkey to Jerusalem. He was grabbing the attention of the crowd and challenging their values and their norms. This wasn't the way of the Romans who ruled with fear and terror. This wasn't the way of the Pharisees who ruled with guilt and shame. This wasn't the way of the zealots who ruled with extremism and violence. This wasn't the way of the Sadducees who turned a blind eye and continued on. This is a different way. This is a gentle way. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets did things that were surprising, designed to draw the public attention and draw people into a moment of reflection. And Jesus is doing precisely that. He had a message from the God of Israel The kingdom of God is here. And this kingdom is unlike any other. This kingdom is far better. Jesus the gentle king, puts on, the, the, puts on display the otherness of God's ways during this triumphal march. He's still doing something big and significant, world-changing, but he's doing it with radical gentleness. Jesus, the gentle king. I wonder what the word gentle conjures up in you. For me, the word gentle kinda makes me wanna gag. As a Christian woman, I've been bored to tears by countless books and messages encouraging me to develop a gentle and quiet spirit. (laughs) And as a female who's a tad bit more enthusiastic and lively, gentle became synonymous with boring. But gentleness is not fragility, and gentleness isn't codependence, and gentleness isn't passive aggression, and gentleness isn't withholding your thoughts, and gentleness isn't fading into the background. And to the men in the room, gentleness probably carries its own set of repulsive ideas. When you hear the word gentle, you might think feminine or soft. But gentleness isn't weak and it isn't powerless. It doesn't mean you have to be a doormat, a pushover, that you're not tough or that you need to be more emotional. I suspect that all of us have trouble with the word gentle. When I picture a gentle person, I think of Mr. Rogers, the patron saint of gentleness. And Mr. Rogers has his finger on this same idea. He says, most of us, I believe, admire strength. It's something we tend to respect in others, desire for ourselves, and wish for our children. Sometimes, though, I wonder if we confuse strength with other words, like aggression and even violence. Real strength is neither male nor female, but is, quite simply, one of the finest characteristics any human being can possess. And we begin to realize that gentleness is neither masculine nor feminine. It isn't abusive, and it's not outdated. And since this is Jesus we're talking about, he gets to define gentleness for us. Jesus is calling us to a radically different understanding of gentleness. Jesus is calling us to recognize our strength and keep it under control. Now, encounters with gentleness are rare. As broken people in a broken world, gentleness isn't our way. It's not our natural inclination but Jesus reaches towards us with a different way, the way of gentleness. Last week, Pete drew our attention to Jesus weeping when his friend, Lazarus, had died. And this week, our passage tells us that Jesus is gentle, which is also a behavior riddled with emotion. In Galatians, we learn that gentleness is an expression of God's spirit within us, meaning gentleness ought to be one of our goals. This is completely countercultural. But again, this is Jesus we're talking about, and he gets to shape who we are becoming as we follow him. We are invited to follow Jesus in this remarkable discipline of keeping our strength in control. We are invited to see through our egos and recognize the dignity and divinity of others by being gentle in our actions and words. We're invited to acknowledge and value the sensitivities, emotions, and experiences of others. Why would we do that? Because gentleness is an expression of God's love for the world. Take a minute and imagine the soothing sound of water flowing down a babbling brook or the gentle sound of raindrops during a storm. While water can have a gentle sound, water is also full of power, strong enough to carve giant canyons and take down redwood trees. Gentleness is not weak. Gentleness is strength. Gentleness is keeping your emotions under control when your child has completely flipped their lid. Gentleness is keeping your desires in control when you have the opportunity to retaliate, but choose not to. Gentleness is choosing your words wisely, even when you know you could take someone down with a harsh response. Gentleness is keeping your emotions under control when things don't go as planned. Gentleness is controlling your behavior and choosing kindness, even when we are most familiar with rage, anger, hatred, and self-preservation. Gentleness is responding with curiosity instead of cruelty. Gentleness is courageous. And that's what we begin to see here. Jesus, matchless in power, yet riding on a donkey and coming to our rescue. It takes a lot of strength to be gentle. It takes incredible discipline to keep your strength bridled. And so we begin to consider if we are to follow our gentle king, what does it look like to be gentle to ourselves? What does it look like to be gentle to our neighbors? What does it look like to be gentle to our kids or to our grandkids? What does it look like to be gentle with our significant other? What does it look like to be gentle with a stranger? What does it look like to be gentle to creation? How might Jesus be inviting us to follow him in the ways of gentleness? In light of another school shooting this week, I wonder how Jesus, our gentle king, might influence how we think about gun violence. Now I do what I can to stay out of most political debates because I can usually see both sides and both exhaust me. But as a mom of two and a friend of many more kids, I'm fed up with school shootings and wonder how following a gentle king might influence our values, the laws we vote for, the rhetoric we cling to, and the causes we give our lives to. For us as Christians, This shouldn't primarily be a conversation about politics, but about how our faith in Jesus changes the way we think about guns. Maybe this is something you haven't thought much about, and I'm excited to learn more as a fellow student in these conversations as well. And on that topic, there's an incredible webinar tomorrow night with our very own Amy Kasari, Jerry Swagger, and our friend Shane Claiborne about how Christians can help move the needle on gun violence. To learn more and to register, simply go to globalimmerse.org. As Jesus, this gentle King, draws near to the city gates, (laughs) the crowds welcome him and they're shouting Hosanna, which literally means save us please the crowd was begging Jesus to save them they were shouting a plea of desperation from Psalm 118 which says Lord save us Lord grant us success but there's another group of people in our story to consider the people who called Jerusalem home how did they receive this unlikely processional The text tells us that the city was stirred. But the Greek word used here is meant to convey much more. The city was agitated. Jesus' arrival was rocking the city. Some even suggest the city was quaking in fear. Do you remember when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11th? I was a senior in high school and our senior class was deeply worried. Rumors of the draft were circulating. My boyfriend and the guys in our friend group who just turned 18 were terrified. Would war change the course of our lives? And I think that more accurately conveys the meaning of this word. There was an uprising beginning. Would this turn to another war? When the city of Jerusalem woke that morning, war wasn't on their radar. But all that seemed to be changing before their very eyes. Would this be like the last uprising, the Maccabean Revolt? And questions start to be asked throughout town. Who is this? Who's causing such an uproar? Or as we talked about in the beginning, the whole city was asking, who is this? What's going on here? And the answer started to spread. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee which yes, Jesus is a prophet, an inspired teacher proclaiming the words of God, but Jesus is also so much more. Not only is Jesus speaking on behalf of God, but he's the very son of God, the long awaited Messiah, the savior of the world. They weren't wrong. This is who they knew him to be, a prophet from Nazareth. But what we know now on this side of the story is that describing Jesus as a prophet is just the tip of the iceberg. He is so much more. And in this moment, we are given a glimpse into the incredible character of God, a God who's so generous and so full of love for all of creation, that even when people don't grasp who he is, his love compels him forward. Even when the introduction he was given was severely insufficient, he did not take offense but instead carried on with the best interest of all creation in mind. Which makes me wonder where our understanding of Jesus is similarly anemic. Remember, some of this crowd had grown up with Jesus. Some of this crowd had spent the last three years traveling with Jesus and watching him do miracle upon miracle and overheard his every teaching. And yet when asked, they replied and said, that Jesus is a prophet from Galilee. Where is our perception of Jesus similarly lacking? Where do we underestimate the gentle love of God for all creation? In Jesus, we see that God is gentle. How might God's gentle character inspire us to live a different way at work or at school? in our neighborhoods, or on the sport fields, while on vacation, or when our plans get foiled, while on the brink of an argument, or when feeling tired or overwhelmed. The story of Palm Sunday shows us a gentle Jesus who embodies the passionate love of God, who wants more than anything to be reconciled to this rebellious world. And Jesus' response is not to destroy or give up on creation, but instead to bless us, even if it means he must ride on a donkey. This is our Jesus. Martin Luther says this, look at him, he rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp or power, but sits on a donkey which is no war animal, but which is ready for the burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. Jesus is stretching our imagination and calling us to a different way of doing things. Here we see that the ways of Jesus on Palm Sunday were gentle, unassuming, and motivated by love for humanity. Now, about that palm frond. Go ahead, pick it up. While only the Gospel of John mentions that the crowds waved palm branches, it's a curious detail. If you've already used it, totally fine. Um, Have you ever wondered why the crowds chose palm branches? (laughs) Well, history tells us there's a reason. A generation before Jesus, when Simon Maccabee drove Israel's enemies out of Jerusalem, people celebrated by waving palm branches. Palms were symbolically linked to military victories. So as Jesus entered Jerusalem, people waved palm branches in hopeful anticipation. They desperately hoped Jesus was the long-awaited king who would drive out the Romans. But notice, this wasn't the symbol Jesus chose for himself. Esau Macaulay says it this way. All four of the Gospels are clear that Jesus chose a symbol, a way for his people to make sense of his kingship. He chose a young donkey. Jesus picked a symbol that emphasized humility, lowliness, and gentleness instead of military strength. Now, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find a baby donkey for each of you to take home today, so palm fronds will have to do. But we can use these to reflect on what it means to follow a king who rejected the way of violence. So again, grab your palm frond and take a look at it. What does it remind you of? As a mom of boys, it reminds me of a sword. And my invitation today is to transform this sword into a cross as a symbol of our desire to follow our gentle king. There are instructions on your chair. And then I invite you to take your frond cross home and to put it somewhere you will see throughout the week and continue to consider the gentle and loving nature of our king, who this week, we remember, endured far more than we wish to fathom, but does it all in the name of love, motivated by a desire for the reconciliation of all things. Today on Palm Sunday, we are reminded that Jesus came to challenge the ways of evil and to make a way back towards goodness, towards love, and to the kingdom of God. How might we do the same as we follow our gentle king? This Holy Week, Let us follow the one who sat atop a donkey so he can remind us of the ways of God and the gentle path of love.